0: All right. as you begin to uh, make your way back to your seats, pretty stoked to get going this morning. And uh, we have a few things to talk about before we do that. I want to just uh, call your attention to the program. I do this every week. Uh, And the reason is is because if you're a visitor here at Canyon Creek Church or a regular, it doesn't really matter. We love you. We care about you and so we have this connection card because connecting is like important and so you mean a lot to us. I know that you know, when you check out a new church it's a little bit weird and you know have lots of questions and stuff like that and maybe some of you guys are coming to us the first time after our winter break. Um, so we just want to thank you, welcome you. I'm Scott, I'm the pastor here. And uh, so what a, if you did not get a program, by the way, just raise your hands up. We will have somebody run one out to you. Did everybody get a program? Seriously? Did you get it? Okay, awesome. Very good job. And uh, ushers always just get it almost 100%. And on the bottom of this program is a connection card, so if you have any prayer requests that you might have, um, if you're a visitor, love for you to fill out as much as you feel comfortable. At the end of the service, the offering bucket will come by, and you can just drop this in. Let us know um, that you're a first-time visitor. Um, You don't have to give in the offering or anything like that. We just want to know that you're here, and just reach out, answer any questions that you might have, and then in addition, prayer requests are super important. We always get those in and love just kind of marching with you through life and seeing what God is doing. God is doing miracles in your life. And we love seeing that. And so, uh, so take, take advantage of the connection card. It's super important. A couple of, uh, of announcements. Um, one is on January 27th, which I believe is just two weekends from now, maybe three, two weekends. Sarah, just people smarter than me have to tell me what the calendar looks like. And so on the 27th is our annual vision night. You do not need to be a member of Candy Creek Church to be there. And it's going to start at, uh, I believe, 7. We'll have some more details later. Uh, but what, the, what we do every week is we get together to talk about what, the, what 2019 looks like for our church. Um, we've got some big things going on. We'll talk about that more coming up here. Uh, 2019 is going to be, I almost said 17. I'm stuck way back in the past, man. But um, 2019 is going to be an awesome year. So I'd love it if you guys could show up for that. Here's the thing. Before that, we do our annual chili cook-off. I think there's a slide up there. We'd love for some volunteers. If you want to sign up and do chili, please do that at the end of the service. Uh, we w- or write it on your connection card, whatever you want to do. The thing is, is that every year the same people win. I, do, I am not one of those people. I try, and every year, I think it's rigged against me because I'm the pastor. Okay, I get it but my chili's really good. I don't know what's wrong with you guys, but I never win. Uh, I want some new people to win. I want some new, like, if you're a student and you're like, you're going to be here not going to winter camp or something like that, you know, rent a crock pot or something and figure it out and beat us all. Like, that's all I'm saying is just, like, come in with a new idea. Chili cook-off is really fun, and that's going to be on the same night, uh, January 27th. So, got that? That's it. Really, that's all I wanted to talk about. The rest of the events are here Um, one thing I wanted to say is I never win anything. I don't. I mean, I don't a lottery player or anything like that, but I know, you know, like if I bought a lottery, it's just a waste of money, so I never do that. I don't gamble, nothing like that. But I did win something in the first service. I wanted to share that with you guys. I won um, this license plate uh, that I'm supposed to proudly put on my car. uh, Dylan gave it to me at first service and it says I finished last in my fantasy football league so I did win something it was an inglorious gift Um, I am going to definitely think about putting this on my wife's car so (laughs) all right so thank you Dylan all right let's get going you guys I'm excited to get started on today so let's pray I'm gonna have to shift gears a little bit heavenly father I pray that you would as we open up your word take over today just take over um In a way, you know, because there's only certain things that I can say, but Lord, as you are coming here, you're going to add to my words, I pray that you would, you know, take them, use them, uh, change them if you need to, uh, as they land on ears and into hearts, God, that we would honor you, honor your word first and foremost, elevate you, God, to the position that you deserve, which is the highest position of authority, the highest position here, God, anoint this place in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So welcome to Left is Mark, Left is Mark. Jesus is going to change your life if you let him. If he hasn't already, Jesus will transform everything about you. He will renovate you from the inside out. He will rebuild you. He'll re architect you. If you haven't been walking with Jesus, I'm here to tell you Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to you. Uh, He's not going to make all your boo-boos go away. He's not going to clean your life up and all your troubles kind of like just fall to the wayside. That's not how it works. But Jesus will transform you in a deep and abiding way. And I'm here to tell you that. I'm here to proclaim that he has done that for me and so many others in this room. But today we're going to be looking at the gospel of Mark. What does gospel mean? Let's start right there. The word gospel, if you don't know, it just simply means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which the eu part of that means good, and the rest of it, angelion, if it sounds a little similar to the word angel, that's because it is. An angel is a messenger, and angelion is the message. So eu, you, good, and message, angelion, is the good news. And so when 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 the Bible mentions gospel, that's actually the word there, good news. So you know, when you think about the gospel in terms of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of them together forming the four gospels, you think of uh, a lot of interesting content, but not all of it is sort of good, right? Because there's a lot of blood in there. There's some suffering. There's temptation. There's some moments where it's kind of like it's sketchy. People are doing some stuff. There's, there's demons. There's all kinds of stuff. So, you know, how, does, how is it good? What's the good part of it? Well, the good part of it is the end. It's the whole meta-narrative of Jesus who came as a sinless suffering servant onto planet Earth as God to transform everything and to make a way for you and I to follow after God. So thousands of years later, here we are transformed still by this incredible revolution of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm really proud to begin this, uh, this series of Mark with you in the gospel of Mark. But Mark is also one of Three of what we call the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic, what does the word synoptic mean? The definition of it is this presenting or taking the same or a common view. And so think of it like syn, synchronization. So if you're in a synchronized swimmer, synchronization. And optic means to see. So to see the same thing or a similar thing, but to tell the story together. The synoptic gospels include much of the same content, many of the same stories often in a similar sequence and in a similar or sometimes identical meaning or wording. They had their own methods. Each one of them had their own unique perspectives and backgrounds as they uh, as they wrote. And so that's why they're a little bit different, but they had their same styles, their own purposes, their own audiences. If you uh, know the Gospels really well, if you know the Synoptic Gospels, you'll realize that like, Matthew is big into genealogies. Luke has a genealogy, but it's not in Mark. Mark is really short. All the other ones are longer. And so there's a lot of differences. There's different audiences. Some were speaking to Jews. Others were to Greeks. And many of them had their own sources. But what it did is it made each portrait of Jesus, and hear this part really well, it made each portrait of Jesus unique and powerful and multidimensional and multi-perspectival. And the great thing about that is is that we end up with a fuller idea of who Jesus is. It's important to remember that the New Testament writers were Greek-influenced, but they were Middle Easterners. So they were, they were telling their stories, being influenced by the West, but they were not themselves Westerners in the way that you think of you and I or you know, like later Western literature. So these are still Middle Easterners that were Greek-influenced, and as a result, when you read this, the Synoptic Gospels, you have to understand that they're not really that concerned with chronological precision. What that means is it's not a history book. It's not intended to tell you that this event happened in such a way, and then right after that, precisely after that, this is what happened, and then this is what happened. And so sometimes people get confused by it because they're like, well, well okay, Mark tells this story and it's a little bit out of um, line with what maybe Luke does, and it's not, pre- not chronologically precise. And the reason is, is it wasn't intended to be that way. These were uh, written by Middle Easterners, and so chronological precision wasn't their goal. Their goal was to tell you a story, the meta narrative of the story of the life of Jesus Christ, what he taught, what he believed, what he represented, and ultimately what he did. Uh, Just as a side note, why is John, the book of John, the gospel of John, not included in the synoptic gospels? And that is because it's not one of them. Over 90% of the book of John is unique. It has its own content. But let's take a look at this word, and I, you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this. I wanted to start with the idea of synoptic for a second because the idea of studying one book of the Bible, which we really elevate and love here at Canton Creek Church, that we love to study the Bible in particular, kind of walking through it because you get that multi dimensional view. Uh, let's take a look at three passages where Jesus is interacting here with the little children. We have one in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. They're basically the same, this is the same story. Their little children being brought to Jesus. The quote from Jesus here at the end, um, just in the Matthew one where it says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these is the same in all of them with the exception of one word, let the little children come to me, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these in Mark 10. And so you can see that there is a little bit of a difference, but it's I'm pretty identical in all three passages. But the text leading up to that quote can be different, the, and it is different in all three. It's the sa- it says basically the same thing. The content is identical, but Matthew adds, if you didn't notice, that he wanted to, Jesus wanted to pray for the little children. I think that's really cool. So Matthew saw that perspective, and he included it. The gospel is full of all, of all kinds of passages like this, where they're, saying, they're, they're coming to the same event, to the same story, but they're telling you from a different perspective, weighted to their own idea and, and view of the situation. It would be like this. If I, if I took two of your friends and I said, listen, tell me the story of how you met. And without the other person present, you're going to get the story, and pretty much most of its particulars are going to be right, well, we met at a coffee shop, or we met it in a class, and this is how we developed a friendship, and then they became our roommate, and such and such. And I would hear the same facts, but I would definitely hear it, number one, in probably a completely different order, not very precise. Then I would also hear the things that meant the most to you, here in number one, and here number two, the, or uh, storyteller number two, the, uh, the same thing. So in other words, that, the, the, that history and narrative belongs to the person who's telling the story that they can bring a perspective and an approach that, uh, that, we, that just adds to the depth and the dimensions of, of it. And this is the gospel according to Mark. So let's get to that. What is it about the, the book of Mark? Uh, So, of all the four Gospels, uh, scholars believe that the book of Mark was probably written the earliest, the the first one that was written. It's definitely the shortest. It's only 16 chapters. It's very short. It's very fast-paced. He clips along. He's almost staccato. Mark is like... This happened, gives it a few sentences, then this happened, right? I mean, you know, Luke goes on and on about the temptation in the wilderness by Jesus and all the quotes of Jesus in Deuteronomy, and it goes on and on. And, and Marcus gives like two verses. So Jesus was in the wilderness, he was tempted. Next, you know, and so he's very much about moving the story along. If you're that kind of a person, if you just, you know, somebody comes and they want to tell you a big long story, let me tell you the story of three days at Gettysburg or something like that, and you just glaze over, you don't like to hear that stuff, you probably are going to like Mark. Mark is just gets to the point, he moves along. Who is Mark? Great question. Mark is probably a guy named John Mark, and he was, history tells us, scholars tell us, a friend of Peter, who's a close confidant of the Apostle Peter, which is really cool because that lends itself to Mark being understood as a very firsthand account of the life of Jesus uh, I, I read it actually a couple of times in a different, from different authors, and they said that it was almost as if Peter is whispering into the ear of Mark. And, and there, there's lots of reasons to believe that, but basically he, Peter is saying, here's, here's what happened, here's how it happened, and Mark would write that down. Tradition tells us that Mark comes from a very wealthy family. He's a family of means. In fact, it was, it's entirely possible in, in tradition says that uh, his family owned the space which Jesus and the disciples used for the Last Supper, kind of a cool fact in Jerusalem. So they would have had means to have a space like that. What is this message? What is the speci- special message, as I call it, of the Gospel of Mark? What's the particular thing that Mark is trying to do? Three things uh, I'm going to tell you really quickly. You don't. You can write these down if you want to, but I'm going to move pretty fast. Number one, he's presenting Jesus as the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. Jesus is not just a good teacher; he's not just a moral philosopher. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Son of David. Number two, he's rejected by the religious authorities. We're going to spend a lot of time on that today. We're going to camp on that idea of what it means to be rejected by the religious authorities. And then number three, Jesus calls his followers to a radical discipleship in the kingdom of God. We're going to see Jesus over and over and over call his disciples to this radical idea of what it means to love and to serve and to give your life. To become greater, you've got to become the least. And stuff like that. It's, this, is, this is where Mark uh, loves to spend his time writing about. Mark's mission is just simple. Draw our attention to Jesus as the Christ that's all he wants to do that's what he constantly does Jesus is the Christ he uses that word over and over again Jesus Christ Jesus Christ he constantly draws attention to Jesus Christ and so shall we here we're going to get going right now let's get started chapter 1 verse 1 of the book of Mark the beginning of the gospel great thank you for telling us of Jesus Christ the son of God And right there, think of that as a great thematic statement for the rest of the book. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is Jesus the Christ. You see it there, right? Oh, just what I told you. He's going to constantly focus not on just this guy, this man, Jesus. He's Jesus, but he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's something different. He moves right on from that into verse 2 and 3 where he quotes Isaiah 40. I'm going to go ahead and read it. And he says, "...as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight." So who is that? That's John, John the Baptist. But who is he preparing the way for? It's the Lord. It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. So right out right there, verse one, verse two, verse three, we already know who we're talking about. He's already laid it out. He's saying Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God, and then he's going to make our path straight, uh, preparing the way uh, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will make our path straight. He sets the tone. Uh, he's not just a great teacher, not just a moral philosopher. Jesus is a revelation of a revolution. Um, of the Lord God himself coming into humanity to change everything. Continues on in chapter 1, we're introduced to this guy, John the Baptist. And by the way, just so you know, and I always say this in introducing John, is that he's not John the Baptist as in John not the Methodist or John not the Lutheran. He's John the Baptist. He's more of a baptizer. So just so you know, uh, those of you who are like, yeah, I grew up a Baptist. I'm just like, John. John is a baptizer and so there were no denominations back, at, back in those days. So just wanted to let you know. Uh, the Bible says in verse 6 that he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's kind of a picture, right, of dude, wild hair maybe, kind of some, you know, bugs in his teeth, right? You know, loved honey, just maybe, like maybe wigged out a little bit. But he was a powerful speaker. In fact, uh, even history records that multitudes would follow John. John was a preacher of repentance, like a firebrand, and people loved John, uh, hung out with John, and then uh, John said some things that uh, made some people mad, and, and John ended up being killed, but before that, he was actually, uh, Jesus showed up, and John, who was his cousin, said, uh, hey, uh, you know, you should baptize me, And and, John, and Jesus says, no, I should Uh, I should be baptized by you in fulfillment of the law. So in verse 9 through 11, Jesus is baptized by John. And then those two verses I was telling you about where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, just two verses, boom, it happens. And then he begins his ministry. He calls his first disciples. I told you things were moving, moving, moving. He's already calling his disciples. By verse 12, verse 14, he's calling Levi. And the rest of the chapter is just simply filled with him like healing lepers and uh, paralytics. And if you read it, it's just amazing how fast moves through and all the way we get to chapter 2 and in chapters 2 and 3 where we're going to spend our time today Jesus is completely the theme of this is he is misunderstood he is misunderstood and so maybe the theme is misunderstanding Jesus or you could call it conflicted I didn't know what, how to title it um, it doesn't really need a title but basically the thing the idea is is chapter one is unique in the book of Mark and it's the only chapter where there is no conflict the rest of the entire book, there's conflict with religious leaders, there's conflict with rulers, there's conflict all the time. And so, but but it really particularly shows up in 2 and 3, and let's look at some of those concerns. Let's look at some of those things that, that were beginning to happen as Jesus spoke and taught and did some things. First of all, in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Jesus has healed this paralytic guy guy without use of his hands, his arms, his legs, and this really, you know, tragic. Uh, There's a lot of opportunity for people that are in that situation, but, you know, for the most part, uh, it, it, it's, it's something that you would hope that there would be a, a way out of, and for, of course, many, it's, it's not going to happen, but in this case, like, this guy is is healed, and he's, you know, incredibly joyful. What, what would have happened? What would your response have been? Pretty excited, right? Like, wow, this is amazing, but when You'd love, this is where it gets really weird. This is not actually how they respond. In verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. All right, great, sounds awesome. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, in their hearts, I love that because he's basically reading their minds. In verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, of course, the subtext and what we know, because we know the end of the story, that this is God, but at the same time, you know, they, they are setting this guy up already for like, wait a second, he's forgiving sins, he's healing people. Like, this is, this is something different about this Jesus. And they continue to harass him and take on issue by issue with the disciples and with Jesus all of the stuff that he's doing and all the things that he's teaching, but in a negative way, tearing him down to rip him down. Uh, he gets to this uh, house where he meets a guy, a tax collector, by the name of Levi, who's Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, the writer of the first gospel. And, uh, you know, tax collectors in those days uh, were not the most popular people. They took advantage of the Jews. They took advantage of poor people. And so he's in this house. The Bible says he's filled, it's filled with sinners. And we pick it up in verse 15. As he reclined um, at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, what are you doing? That's, do you know what that person has done? Do you know what she's said? Do you know where she's been? Do you know who's dated her? And that guy over there, that tax collector, do you realize what, like, he is Enron. Like, that guy is horrible. What is he? And, and so Jesus is sitting there and his disciples, and for there were many who followed him. He was popular at this point. Verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners, yuck, and tax collectors, ugh, he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they're arguing now with his disciples. They're, they're arguing in their hearts. They're arguing with the disciples. And it just gets worse and worse as we go on. In verse 18, this is the whole issue of fasting, right? Now, it's not like they were fasting and then the Pharisees came up and they said, hey, you know, you're fasting, but you're fasting for the wrong reasons. No, they're, they're angry with him because of this. In verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting And people came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Hey, how come other people are doing it this way and you're doing it a different way? Why are you guys not fasting? Why are you not participating in the religious uh, rituals in the way that we are? And so they couldn't stand him for that. They're questioning him all the time. Every time he stops, every time he does something, they're taking a contrarian position. Have you ever known anybody like that? Then no matter what you do, no matter what you say, if you're the one saying it, you are wrong. Like, they, and you are, you're like singled out, or and maybe you do this to some other people. Like, if they say it, they're absolutely wrong, and I won't buy into their position no matter what. That's kind of the way it is for Jesus here. And then we, uh, we get into the Sabbath, and uh, in verse 23, we're on, still on chapter 2, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as he made his, their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, okay, like they're hungry, I, can, I get that. But the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are, you, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So basically the Bible says you're not supposed to harvest grain on the Sabbath. Now, it's not like they were there harvesting, you know, for for the marketplace. They were hungry, and they reached out and they plucked a few grains of wheat. Now, so Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. He says, like, you're totally misunderstanding what God meant by the Sabbath if you think that my guys are out there harvesting grain. And so they begin to have this big uh, blow up with Jesus over the Sabbath. And it continues. In fact, it gets so bad, they start like social media stalking Jesus in big time and in, in, in around verse uh, one of chapter three. Uh, and this is goes, it's, it's crazy. So let's go in and read this section and it blows my mind. Um, again, he entered the synagogue, Jesus did, and a man was there with a withered hand. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds painful. It probably uh, kept him from working maybe the way that he meant to. Um, and they watched Jesus. Why were they watching Jesus? Like, oh, wait, he might be like, he might be able, he's going to heal this guy. It's going to be great. No, they were watching him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might (laughs) accuse him. Now imagine that, like, I'm, if I'm going to, like, the soup kitchen and I'm serving some people, and then there's, like, this one particularly bad guy, stinky guy or something like that, he comes up, and I'm, like, and, and, and instead of somebody watching me to see whether I take care of and I show compassion to this person, you're watching to see if I mess up or screw up in any way. Ever had anybody that, like, looks at you to follow you around to see if you're going to mess up or do something that you shouldn't do? That's basically what they're doing with Jesus. In verse 3, and they said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They didn't have an answer. They couldn't really rationalize or think it through with Jesus. And so they just stayed quiet, as well they should. And they did this all the time. In verse 5, and he looked around, Jesus did, at them with anger. Jesus was ticked off. But he was also grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hands. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored back to that position of being strong, being able to move those digits and function again the way that, it, you know, his, his hand was supposed to. And uh, you'd think, like, this is an opportunity for amazing joy, right? The guy is finally able to work again. Wow, God is so good. But what they did is, in verse 6, they, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him and this is really a foreshadowing of good friday right where they would get the relig- religious leaders would get together and with the roman authorities and they would conspire to uh to arrest jesus to try him in an illegal trial and then execute him on good friday this is a foreshadowing of that the pharisees and all the religious leaders are concocting this whole story about how they're going to destroy him and, and the, 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 uh, the conspiracy sort of begins. Like, we like to think of it like, I used to think of it kind of like when Jesus began his ministry in the Gospels, it kind of was going pretty well and he was popular until he hit Jerusalem. And then there was like, there was like the palms and everything. And then it got really bad after that. But actually, if you look at the account of Mark, it's important to realize that, that it's always been bad. And so one of the things that I would say here is conflict, number one, conflict is part of the life of Jesus. It began in chapter 3 of Mark, actually chapter 2 of Mark, and it it runs the entire way through the story. About one year then, into his public ministry, he's colliding head on with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, all all these guys, and this collision quickly escalates into a death plot already in verse in chapter 3. And it continues over the next three years until he is actually arrested, tried, and executed, crucified on a cross. So what was it about Jesus, if you ever wondered it? What would, why were they so threatened? What was it about him that was so threatening? First of all, they had a lot in common. If you think about it, Jesus was a Jew. Um, he, um, at the root level, he would have understood a lot of those same things. He was a monotheist, just like they were. Um, he was uh, into the Old Testament. That was Old Testament time, right? Jesus didn't have the New Testament, neither did they. And so, so, so they had a lot in common. What was it about Jesus? Uh, the thing is, is at the root level, there were some irreconcilable differences between their perspective and Jesus and what he was teaching. Jesus loved each one of them. It's important to know that he did, but he hated that religious mentality that they promoted, that sort of like eye for an eye mentality and they refused to see it the way that Jesus was teaching, the way that Jesus was saying it. He was so radically different. And, it, you know, it, for those of you guys that have never read the Gospels before, if you do, you will see that he is a revolutionary like no one else. Jesus turned everything upside down. And I, I'm proud to be a part of that revolution. But the thing is, is that it's an ongoing revolution. It's still happening today. You're a part of it. If you are a believer and you are sharing your faith, you are a part of that revolution uh, have you ever met somebody where, maybe you are this person, where you, you just pick a side? Uh, let's say politically is a great example because we seem to be a very divided nation and uh, and and folks are just polarized. And we, we what we do is we create these silos of information and we just like pick a side and we stand in our silo and we are right and everyone else over there outside of our silo is completely wrong. And what's weird about today is instead of like fighting, you know, in the arena of ideas, you just kind of like pick an anonymous Twitter account, and you can fight it off in social media, but never actually have to engage intellectually with somebody on the other side. And so, and even like beyond that, we confirm our own biases by just sort of like signing up for a so, social media channel or information that feeds our biases, confirms our biases. We pick a, a cable news network, and we're like, this is our... Our, our network, our people, our anchors, and all, everybody else on the other side is wrong. And the people over here, they're doing the same thing. They're in the silo, and they're like, the people over here are completely wrong. Well, that was actually going on here, where uh, the, the religious leaders, they would refuse to see it Jesus' way. It doesn't matter what they're doing. It's like, oh, fasting? Well, he's not fasting enough. Oh, he's, they're, they're not fasting at all. Oh, they're fasting too much. No, no, Jesus, well, he's healing on the Sabbath. No, and they're picking grain off of the ground, and oh my goodness, he's not like, I mean, Jesus could do nothing right. And so in a sense, there was this irreconcilable difference, and it was a part of the entire ministry of Jesus. If you tend to think of Jesus as getting along with everybody, as sort of like being a friend to everyone, he was a friend to sinners, but not really to the religious leaders. He refused uh, their religious mentality. So number one, conflict is a part of the life of Jesus. Number two, conflict is a part of life. It really is. And some of you guys are like, you know, not if, not if you live it right, right? If you do it right, you won't be in conflict. It is a normal part of, listen, normal part of healthy relationships, conflict, right? I mean, I, I, if you're in a situation that one person in the relationship is always making the decisions and there never is any conflict, that might not be healthy, right? Because that one person has all the power and no one else gets to say anything. No one else gets to decide anything. There's no co-equal perspectives. There's no multi-perspectival conversations. And if you have that and you have a partnership and a relationship, you're going to have conflict. And it's okay. I remember, um, you know, our first year of marriage, first year was pretty easy. We were like, wow, it's a honeymoon period. It's right. It's fun. Like everyone else argues. We don't argue. And we were in for a, rude awakening because second year we had our like i remember it clearly because we had a disagreement about something we had some conflict and i went to my pastor and i says like we, i think we're having marital marriage troubles and he says why and um you know tell me like what's it all about you're only a year into marriage and i said well we're arguing and yeah but tell me what the problem is and he's like well we're having arguments and so we're disagreeing and my pastor is like okay but what's the problem because that's normal. And we were like, we didn't argue the first year. And he says, like, it's so healthy. You guys were unhealthy the first year. This is the healthy part of marriage where you do have conflict. Conflict is a part of life. Now, some conflict is incredibly destructive. And this is why it bears some teaching as far as, like, okay, what does conflict look like? Um, and, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit, What de- what destructive conflict looks like. But it's important to understand that Conflict is often necessary. It needs to happen. It needs to be fleshed out. And even though many of us in certain situations would love to run away, somebody says something to us and we just would want to abandon that friendship and that relationship rather than go through the painful process of dealing with the conflict or reconciling. And so we do. We want to run away, but it's often really necessary to face conflict head on. Conflict is not the same however, as sowing discord or creating conflict. It really isn't. And in fact, if you're that type of person who would create conflict or sow discord, this is what this looks like for you. We're going to let the Bible speak out of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. And uh, this is quite the picture of a person who is um, spreading discord. We'll start here in verse 12. A worthless person, <laughs> a wicked man, Goes about with crooked speech. What's crooked speech? It's like you can't trust him, whatever he says, because he's probably trying to lie, probably trying to tear down, probably trying to just sow discord. He has, he has no loyalties. He has no, um, no real friends. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet. Now, I get the winking with the eye thing. But the signaling with the feet, what does that look like? I don't know. Like, like there's Joel over there. I don't know. Um, but anyway, and then he points with his finger, that I get, right? You ever know anybody like that? They're just kind of like, dude, what about her? She's here. Look what she does, you know? I mean, we're like, that guy right over there, you know? And they're always trying to call attention. Do you see that flaw? Did you see what I wrote about them? Did you read their, like, bio? You know, I don't know. They're kind of, and always tearing down, always sowing Discord. Maybe they're coming up and they're saying, you know, um, I heard that she said something about you or he said something about you. Constantly tearing down, ripping down at the fabric of relationships. What happens to this person in verse 14? With perverted heart, devises evil. He continually sows discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken without healing. There is a point at which your leadership, your influence, if you're not a man of integrity, if you're sowing discord, a woman of integrity sowing discord, you will end up creating such sickness inside of you that you will be broken beyond healing. That's just the Bible speaking right there. That you will get to a point where you will turn to people and they won't be there for you. You will ask for help, but there will be no help. That you will feel like the enemy is pressing in on you from all sides but because of the way that you have lived your life, a worthless person, a wicked man with crooked speech, winking eyes, signaling with their feet, pointing with their finger, with perverted heart devising evil, evil that you are broken beyond healing. That's what the Bible says. That's sowing discord. That's creating conflict. That's not the same as living with conflict or dealing with conflict. Head on with a conversation and in truth and in love, with that person that you care about, with that relationship that you value enough to confront, that you value enough to stare in the face and say, I'm willing to fix this. I'm willing to forgive as much as it takes. So conflict is a part of life. Conflict was a part of the life of Jesus Christ. But number three, conflict is a part of the Christian life. It really is. And this is a part we don't like to talk about. We don't really give it the I think the attention that it deserves, but if you see Jesus interacting with these people, he is uh, living a life in conflict with the religious leaders. But as he as he gives over the life of the of belief and of service to his church, right to us, he actually gave us a lot of conflict, right? That's just inherent in the Christian life. The root of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was simple. It was that. Um, Jesus was insisting on initiating God's love for all of these people, no matter who they were, tax collectors, sinners, and things like that. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, they were all insistence on being separated from them. Like, those are the others, they're the unclean, we don't sit with them, they're those yucky sinners, they've got like sin cooties. And so, whether it was in your theology or in your practice, it was all about separation. And Jesus was saying, no, I want to embrace them in love. Okay, radical concept. But in the end, we have to choose like, what's more important in that situation? To make it as difficult as possible. And let me ask you a question. When you talk to people about your faith, do you, do you take, which approach do you take? To make it as difficult as possible for us to sin. That's the Pharisees' approach. Make it really difficult to sin because there's tons of punishment and there's always retribution and execution and all these things that could happen. Or number one, or number two, make it as easy as possible for people to approach the gospel and Jesus is so approachable right the story of Jesus with the adulterous woman where he writes on the ground and probably lists out their sins and they take off you know one by one convicted Jesus was saying, "I'm approachable. I'm available. I'm forgiving. I am loving." That's the so you have to decide in that conflict which direction are you taking. the, the good news is, is that this personal re- love that Jesus um, ha- offers to us offers a, a relationship with Him. Like I talked about earlier, that we can talk to Him, that we can fellowship with Him, that we can know Him. Like super cool. But why then is Christianity like so often associated with ritual observance? Well, I'm a Christian oh, okay, well, tell me what that means. Doesn't that mean I have to go to church? Doesn't that mean I have to do all these things, these five things first? Do I have to give to the church? Do I have to serve? Do I have to, you know, sign up for something? Do I have to go to, you know, confessional, communion, confirmation, all that stuff? What are the steps that it takes? You know, and so why is it that Christianity is often associated with that, that ritual observance? And is there anything wrong with any of that? No, but it misrepresents the gift The gift is that Jesus died once and for all for sins, and it makes that available to us. Ritualism turns Christianity, listen, from a joyous expression of love and exciting relationship with God to an impersonal, boring, lifeless system of rituals, and it makes God this distant figure, this unapproachable figure. Jesus wipes all that clean, and he says, I reconcile that with this fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And everyone here in this room, everyone here all across um, Moscow, all across Pullman, all across history, in every country, every time, every place, has been extended this opportunity that by Jesus Christ, you can have a relationship with God. Now, there is a conflict also with people that just don't want to follow Jesus. And you know that those type of people. You enter into conversations with them. Some of you, if you're Christians and you fo- you're, uh, follow the discipleship model, you're having spiritual conversations with those at your school, at your campus, uh, people that you might run into at work. You're, you're having conversations. Maybe you're not. You should. Um, you're like, well, I don't want to get rejected. Well, Jesus was rejected. You know, the thing that I want to say about this is that conflict in the sense of people misunderstanding Jesus or not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus or just have, like, roped him off in their mind, like, that's just not something I'm going to consider. That's not a shut door. That's not a closed door. That's just a fact. That just is what it is. You know, it, first of all, it's not your job to save everyone, but the more people that you do talk to, the more conflict you'll find is kind of normal. You can't clean it up and you can't just wish it away. Now I'm not so saying go out there and be a jerk for Jesus and like tell everyone they're going to hell and grab a, you know, like a micro uh, what do you call them, those like uh, megaphones and like just, you know, on campus and start telling people about all their sins and everything. No, that's not good. I want you to do that. But as you're having conversations, like don't be afraid if somebody says, I think you're weird for believing in the resurrection, dude. That is super weird. Well, no, 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 Jesus is like, no, it's not weird. If you think about it, it's totally logical and we'll go through all the rational steps and are like, no, no, it still seems like a fairy tale to me, man. You know what that is? That's irreconcilable differences. It's okay. Because one thing, it does not mean that the person that said that, they're going to hell. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. What that means is in that moment, they have a huge barrier, an obstacle in their walk with Jesus. God can smooth it out through time. He can take your words, even though you might feel like the conversation ended badly or it, with rejection. My point is this, is we all want to be liked, but there's a point in which we need to be like Jesus. We need to say it like it is and just let it stand. Let the truth of the gospel stand. It doesn't, see, the, the thing is it's about the gospel, it doesn't need to be sanitized by us. It doesn't need to be cleaned up and all. Right, And it, it, it needs to be preached in love to as many as possible. But it does, we don't need to like, figure out the cultural imperatives and like, carve away the parts we don't like so that we kind of clean it up. And I'm going to go a little bit further with this. Um, in fact, I think the Bible says it way better than I could. So I'm just going to read uh, out of First Corinthians. Now, First uh, Corinthians does this great job. I think of, uh, in, in, in verse 20 of chapter 1, of tying this whole idea together for us about Jesus in conflict and uh, so let me just read it it says where is the one who is wise where is the scribe you can just I'm I, like I love picturing Paul just kind of like standing behind the scribes and the pharisees as the movie is playing of this conflict in in Mark chapter 2 and 3 and he says where's the scribe where's the debater of this age where are you guys Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has he not upended everything that you thought were wise and great philosophies and we were going to follow this? Has he not upended it all? In verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now track with me for a second. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Like, you ever known somebody that just demands a sign? They want that emotional experience. They want that little tickle. They don't feel that. If they don't feel the, the, like, the fuzzy feeling, they're just always searching for an emotional response. They want to see a sign. They want to see, like, they'll pray, God, if you want me to follow you, you know, I want you just, you shut, I want you to, like, hit me over the head with, like, literally a brick or something, you know? Like, they're just always looking for a sign. And there's another there's other type of people that they're seeking wisdom. They're just looking for that rational belief system. If you could give me a a logical argument, I'll get there, right? I wanna I just wanna follow through the 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 thread uh, of the discussion till I get to this and it unfolds for me and all the stars line and I'm going, oh yeah, Jesus makes sense for me. That was the same back in those days for Jesus, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but but listen, but we preach Christ crucified which is what a stumbling block to jews and it's folly to gentiles it's a stumbling block and it's folly it's silly and with the, so here's what i want to leave with you and i think the great message out of mark chapter two and three is this for us that the gospel doesn't need to be sanitized and guess what it will cause people to stumble i remember hearing the gospel for the very first time and i rejected it entirely I was like, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. I, lo- I'm, I'm a th- I love to think my way through stuff. I'm not so much the demanding signs, but I'm really seeking the wisdom and it just did not make sense to me until I was flat on my back with no other option and I said, Jesus, if you're there, show yourself to me, and he did. But, but see, I came to Christ as he wanted me to on his terms, not mine. And so what I'm saying is, as we reach out, as we have relationship, and we invite people to church, and we have conversations, don't be afraid of the rejection. Don't try to clean it up. Jesus has the story all figured out. And it's a stumbling block. It's okay. That doesn't mean the person's gonna trip and fall and never get up, but they may stumble over your words, over the message of the gospel, because it is a stumbling block. It's very bloody. It's very, it's very weird for somebody who's never heard it before. Persist in love And keep making disciples like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those people here where they um, feel in their minds like you are this great, um, impersonal God in the universe, this force. They don't see you as having uh, anything to do with their lives, having any knowledge of their circumstances or their pain or their suffering, or their questions, Lord, I pray today that they would begin, that would melt away in light of your Holy Spirit, that you would come down and be a personal God for them. And Lord, respond, I pray, and ask God to their prayers and their their simple prayers, Lord, that you would be real, um, Jesus, to them, as you are to me. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen. I would love to invite the ushers to come forward. We're gonna receive our tithes and offerings this morning. And uh, it's our, you know, I want to say this, it's my great privilege to have you guys back after your winter break. It's so good to see some of you guys here. Hope that you had a really great time with family and friends, and we're ready to head into 2019, and I'm excited to see what God is going to do. Let's go ahead and pray over the offering. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, God, for sustaining this church. Each gift, every giver. Lord, we thank you so much for your good works. In Jesus' name, amen. The offering book is going by. Just go ahead and drop in your connection cards in addition to prayer requests and stuff. I wanted to tell you really quickly, we are a church of many campuses. We have some Washington campuses, and our largest one, our Mill Creek campus, is building a new building. And I wanted to give you an idea of what God is doing at Canyon Creek Church. So if you've never seen it, um, you're going to see it for a second as it gets torn down and rebuilt. So here we go. Go ahead and stand on your feet. Now, this is going to be our best year ever, too. And I'm just, uh, you know one that was really cool about their campus being um, in Mill Creek is they are now, uh, that our campus in Mill Creek is the only church in that entire city. And I think that's awesome, right? God is good. Every here in Moscow, I think we have a million churches. They're like in Mill Creek, one church and we're it. So I think that's awesome and it's just a great opportunity that God has given us. So pray for the Mill Creek campus as they're building their building. Let me pray for you one last time as you go. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would go from this place uh, transformed, not by the things that I say, but by your word. Lord, I pray that we would lean into Mark chapter 1 through 3 and read it and understand it um, by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some next steps that you could have is just to read Mark chapter 4 by next week, because I'm going to go into that. And have a great week. We'll see you back next week. Peace out.